Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen wraps up her eight-part series exploring the roots and history of attachment theory with the conclusion of her two-part discussion with Dr. Robert Karen on his landmark book, Becoming Attached. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock, and wow, am I excited about the interview I have for you today. This interview is going to be part of the series we are doing, looking at the history of attachment theory. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Robert Karen. Dr. Karen is a clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. And if his name sounds familiar, it could be because he has written a very famous award-winning book called Becoming Attached, which was released in actually 1994, following an article called Becoming Attached, which was in The Atlantic in 1990. The book is just a beautiful synthesis of attachment theory, attachment research, and uh, the application of it. And honestly, it reads like a novel. When I first got my hands on this book back when it was released, I could not put it down and he's currently revising it so if you haven't read becoming attached you may want to wait for the release of the updated version he's also um, a private practice psychologist psychoanalyst in new york city and in addition to his famous books and that article i already mentioned in the atlantic he's written for new york magazine the nation as well as the yale review and has been an assistant clinical professor of advanced psychological studies at adelphi university also in New York. So I am really looking forward to chatting with him. He's just a perfect person to be interviewing regarding the history of attachment theory. So please stay tuned. The interview will be coming right up. So hello, Dr. Karen. Great to be continuing this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. I can't believe how fast the first half hour went. <laughs> yes. So, um, in, in, in uh, continuing to talk about this, uh, you know, in, in our previous conversation, we were, you were talking about Bowlby and his, his strong ideas and, and Mary Ainsworth. And um, there's a story that you um, write about, and, and I actually, am, I, I want to read it um, from the Atlantic article where the very first case, which, and we're talking here about um, Melanie Klein, um, which she supervised with Bowlby in the spring of 1938, set the tone. He, was, he said, I was seeing a small hyperactive boy five days a week. He was anxious in and out of the room all over the place. His mother used to bring him and her job was to sit in the waiting room and then to take him home again. She was a very anxious, distressed woman who was wringing her hands in a very tense, unhappy state. But I was forbidden 
by Melanie Klein to talk to this poor women, woman. Tell us the importance of that story. Well, it's important on a lot of levels. Yes. One is that Klein was, you know, very important in psychoanalysis and, and she inspired a lot of people with, with ideas that were brand new to psychoanalysis and that had a lot to do with aspects of the human condition which analysis had overlooked. So she was a, a major inspirational figure and she was also a, um, a horribly, um, uh, I don't know, a combative person who, you know, really treated people terribly. But she was, she was very important and, and she also had no interest in the environment. For her, all she wanted to study was what going, was going on in a child's mind. She talked about fantasy life, and and she was, it, and what she had to say was very interesting. But she was, she had a total blind spot when it came to the environment. You know what? What was the quality of the child's experience? What was the quality of the parenting? So Bowlby, who had worked in a child guidance center where these things, where where children and, and parents were were treated together and you know you or simultaneously um was horrified by melanie klein's attitude how, how the 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 uh mother who's sitting in the waiting room holds the key to why this child is hyperactive and um but melanie klein would have none on it and none of it and that was when bulby became determined to make a science of the environment of, of the early environment of the child and that was 20 years before he introduced attachment theory well and you go on to say that the woman had a breakdown and was hospitalized and yeah so and, you know she kind of went ahead and proved Bulby's point you know she her psychology was in a terrible state and it could only have had immense impact on the child mm-hmm yeah. To dealing with it, to have a mother who, instead of being able to, you know, be happily involved in the dance with you of, of you know, mute, of you know the things that mothers and children do, uh, but is preoccupied with herself and ready to have a nervous breakdown. Yes. You know, just imagine what that does to a, a small child's mind. Yes. Yes. And, you know, another thing I was thinking about with when talking about controversy and how uh, Mary Ainsworth was being treated, not not very well for her ideas, um, this idea that um, you write about her saying picking up the baby doesn't create dependency. I love this next phrase here it liberates and enables autonomy right it, it, it when a child gets love and when love is the you know the organizing principle of the parent child relationship the child comes away free to explore to go, you know if you're in the playground with a child the child who feels secure will crawl away from the mother he will look back. Yes. He will come back and make and get and make some have some kind of physical contact. Maybe yes. he'll bring mommy a toy. But he will feel secure enough to wander. Yes. To crawl to the other side of the box, and um, this way this was 
revealed again and again in attachment studies. This what? this became a truism of attachment that security of the security of attachment, which is all about love, and and the quality of love and how it's how it's you know transmitted. That was going to um, lead to freedom to explore, to go your own way because you carry that love within you. Mm-hmm. And so, you can go quite a distance with that love in you. So and you ra- still feel. Yeah. So rather than creating a dependence, in a way, it leads to independence. Independent, very absolutely. different than what behaviorists were thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, we we haven't said anything about Spitz, and something that stood out to me was even Spitz wasn't supporting Bowlby. And you know, tell 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 us about that. You you look at those films that he created, and it, it seems like wow, this is making a great case for what he's saying. Yeah, Renee Spitz was enormously important because of um, his. But he picked up on the fact that if a child is put in, is separated prematurely from its mother. Yes. And put in like an orphanage or someplace where it's getting institutional care while mother is in the hospital or because the mother can't take care of the child and has abandoned it entirely. But that those children sometimes don't thrive, not only fail to thrive, but they, they die. Um, and he filmed it. He filmed it in, in Mexico. I mean, there's all kinds of controversies about uh, the quality of what he did. It was a bit primitive, but he did show this to happening. This this really had such a major impact on people. And Bowlby came along and pretty much took, you know, after World War II, there were a lot of displaced people all over the globe and it was a major problem for uh, families and children and the World Health Organization asked Bowlby to write a report on what these children needed. Yes. And he included Spitz's studies and the studies of a lot of others who had seen the effects of maternal maternal deprivation, that's what it was called, maternal deprivation. And you know, either through death or loss. And he, and he himself had treated some of these kids and had seen what happened to them. And this book that, that, was, that came out of the World Health Report that he did was a worldwide bestseller and had a huge impact. And Spitz was, you know, part of the evidence. But when Bowlby initiated attachment theory in 1958, Spitz um, scolded him for having his ideas, you know, for his ideas being more wrong, they, you know, violated Freudian orthodoxy and Spitz wasn't ready to do that. Mm. And so um, he became, he and he and Anna Freud and, and uh, Freud's doctor, I forget his name, all wrote responses to uh, Bowlby's first article on attachment, which was the first time ever in, the, uh, in, in that journal that there had been responses, you know, to an article that was uh, published in it. But he persisted. He just oh yeah persisted. oh nothing could stop him, and he he found other allies like he he found uh, Harry Harlow in Los Angeles who was doing these amazing studies with animals and attachment in animals, family connections and how they get evolved and how love is shown, and um, and Bobby went and spent a year out there with Harlow in in in, in Los Angeles, and um, learned a lot about ethology at the time. Yes. 
Well, and I think uh, something else you mentioned and um, was the, the partnership of Bowlby and Ainsworth. And, you know, Ainsworth wasn't as self-assured, uh, but then she brought the, the science to, to what he was saying. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts about that partnership that you Well, share? it was a wonderful partnership. The two of them enjoyed it tremendously. Bowlby's wife confirmed that for me, you know, that she would come over and they'd spend the whole day in it, locked up in his study, you know, reading each other's work. Mm. And they they had a, uh, you know, a, a working kind of love affair between them. It was it was terrific. And and she told me that she thought that it probably one of the things that made it possible is that she was a woman. She said that she had never seen a, 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 a man take a subordinate role to another man in the same way that that women did. She'd, she'd seen that not only in herself, but in others as well. Mm-hmm. And this was an interesting sidelight for me that she noticed this, that she she was she was happy to have Bowlby be number one and she was number two. But in reality, she was a hell of a number two. I mean, she was so important to attachment theory. He really lucked out with her. He needed an assistant for something he was doing at the time, and he put an ad in the paper in London. She happened to be there with her husband, who was just uh, who got a, uh, a professorial job there. And she needed something to do. She was, she was an academician herself. She quit her job in Toronto in order to follow her husband to London. So she's looking for a job, and she opens the classifieds. And she gets and she joins Bowlby, and it was the luckiest thing that ever that ever happened to Bowlby. It was pretty important for Ainsworth too. It set the course of her working life. Yes, yes. Uh, she she made a lot of things possible. He might have otherwise never become uh, famous, or an, an attachment theory would never have been right. as important as it is without her. Yes, yes, and you know the the. There was sometimes distance, you know, within and not seeing each other for a while, and then they reconnected. And um, when she came to Baltimore, correct? Yeah, she she was in Africa for a year, and she did mm-hmm. a, a brown baking study there of family life and you know the differences in attachment. And um, but I, from what I remember, they were always in touch. Okay. And Bowlby was really delighted to to hear about her African studies, and he was, you know, yes. always probably probably the first one to to read the manuscript when she finally it came out in a book called Childhood in Uganda. Yes. And or infancy in Uganda, something like that. So then I think about um, uh, another person um, and. Mary Maine. And I, as you were talking about, you know, this ad in in the paper, which brings uh, Bowlby and Ainsworth together. And it just seems like, wow, what what a stroke of luck. And then I've heard Mary Maine lecture that she ended up in working with Ainsworth because she couldn't get into the linguistics program she wanted to get into. So they're like, just go over here. I mean, you could think about babies learning to talk or something. Um, and then what happens there? Um, yeah, with- no, she, she becomes incredibly important too. She's like the next generation. And she and Alan Srofe doing two very different but parallel things. Um, become the, the next two critical people. And 
the big thing that Mary Ainsworth uh, invented that she's most known for, although it's not by any means the only contribution, is the adult attachment interview, in which she showed that um, the same attachment categories that existed for small children existed for adults also. They had different characteristics, obviously, but there was something very parallel about the adult categories. And, and the uh, other thing that she d discovered was not only that these categories existed for adults, but if you checked out what, what the categories, that ch what category their children fell into, the one, the insecure adults, the insecurely attached adults tended to have insecurely attached children. So there was a, a, a this whole idea of transmission yes. from, from parent to child was first showed up with the adult attachment theory. And um, the adult attachment theory interview first uh, proved, showed it with evidence. Yes, yes. Well, you know, and um, it's my understanding also that she is, as she was looking at strange situations, she also initiated the disorganized classification that's right. And that's that, the most, yeah, go ahead. Well, and I think that some have said the theory would have collapsed without that classification being recognized since it has become so important. Yeah, it was a level of insecurity that Ainsworth hadn't accounted for. Yeah. I think partly because she hadn't seen it, <clears throat> wasn't there, because it, it isn't all, it is less common than most in the other categories. Yes. But um, <clears throat> the disorganized category is almost universally applied to children who were traumatized. Yes. But not the everyday trauma, trauma that, you know, creates insecurity in the rest of us, but uh, really severe trauma where they become, in some cases, terrified of their own parents. So you see children who um, are both drawn to their parent and are frightened of her at the same time. Yes. And uh, it means they can't develop. The other insecure categories, they have a way of being they can live with. Right. It's distorted by their defenses and they, they, they aren't as open and they have some false, they have some false ideas about what, what to expect from people. But um, they they have a they have a structure that they can put together for themselves in social situations and in, and in personal situations and relationships. Yes. The disorganized don't have that structure, and and they be, they begin to look very odd, and sometimes end up with some of the more severe character disorders when they get to be adults. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly um, so fascinating, you know, looking at the strange situation and how Mary Ainsworth found a way in 20 minutes to consolidate data on people that was taking hours and hours in home in, in home observation. You talk about that, too. Um, and then the adult attachment interview and that intergenerational transmission and and the move to representation that it's how you think about your history it was such a fascinating part of the adult attachment interview as well why was that such a big deal 
When Mary Maine did the six-year um, follow-up in her longitudinal study, she thought there would be some way of, she wanted to find out if the children held on to their attachment category in as almost pictorially in their minds, that there was yeah. something in the, their minds that was connected to their attachment category. So that was the level of representation. Yes. And, the, and the, what, they, what they did was really ingenious. They showed the children pictures of, of separation, like parents telling a child, we're going away for the weekend, or parents telling a child, we're going away for two weeks, or parents telling a child, we're, we're going to be away tonight. You know, the variations on separation. Yes. And how to and asking the child, showing them the pictures, one at a time, and you ask him each one, what is the child feeling? What is no, yeah, what is the child feeling? And it's amazing what the kids said and how well it correlated with their earlier attachment category. You know, some some children would say, well, I would want to get my my their phone number in case something happened that I had a call. Whereas others would say, I would, I would chase them in my little car and I would shoot them with my bow and arrow. <clears throat> mm-hmm. you know, or others would say, oh, that little girl is feeling terrible. She's, she's, going to, um, she's going to, you know, cry and she's never going to get over it. You know, I wish I could remember better right. what, what exactly they said because they were yes. very, very moving. Yes. But it did show that uh, or some of the another another one of separations was taking the child to school on the first day and what the child the children said really did show a tremendously they had very different attitudes and expectations you know some felt oh that's a problem but i think i know what i would do about it i'd get the phone number or <clears throat> i'd ask them if i could come or they all they, the ones who tended to have secure attachment histories also had some way of dealing with the situation aside from falling apart or getting you know angry and wanting to kill mm-hmm. and mary main also talks about she was <clears throat> noticing patterns in the way when encoding strange situations when talking to a parent about their own history if they had a secure baby they were describing their history in a one way and those with uh, avoidant or ambivalent babies seem to be talking about their own history in another way i always find that so intriguing that yeah you could recognize the ability of the scientists to look and listen f- for patterning just fascinates me. This was Maine's tremendous uh, uh, contribution. The way she divided up the adults was how they spoke about early experience, not what the early experience was, right? but how they spoke about it. And she found, you know, these major variations like, there were some parents who could talk about very difficult early experiences where they were probably would have been classified as insecure, mm-hmm. but they could talk about it with some clarity. They obviously were no longer upset about it. They, they had some distance from it, but they, 
remembered it with feeling. It was meaningful to them. It wasn't something that they were, you know, just uh, brushing off. Mm-hmm. Other parents would say, "Oh no, I, you know, I didn't. We didn't have any problems as kids. My my mother was a saint." Mm-hmm. And but if you continue questioning, you find out that there were problems in this this in childhood. Uh, like one man in, in, in one of the Maine's early uh, studies talked about um, being having breaking in his arm and not feeling he could go tell his parents about. It. Yes. Even though his mother was a saint. Right. And, um, and then there were another group of parents who would get all upset talking about it as if it was happening right then and there. Yeah. And they would yeah. like become so obsessed and so upset that they wouldn't realize or see, they would seem to forget that they were in an interview with a stranger. Yeah. And that this was something of a formal situation. They're carrying on talking about, and she wouldn't do this, and she wouldn't do this, and then she did that. And so Maine really found some amazing differences between how things, how early experience was talked about. And that was how she created her categories. And how adult categories. And how it in many ways was the same as the way the baby behaved in the strange situation. And they were related, yeah. They were related, not not the same, but because the baby, of course, couldn't talk, and it was right. a, language was irrelevant, and but it was in the aftermath. But sort of the the fussing, for example, of the ambivalent baby, and the way you just described a preoccupied person. Right, exactly. Yeah, those things looked. You could understand how one category in infancy led to another in adulthood yes but with one caveat a much better way of saying it (laughs) but there's a really important caveat and that is that so much happens between infancy and adulthood not only does the parents change the quality of the parenting may change drastically um other attachment figures become involved, the father, the grandmother, the uncle. If the baby is lucky, he or she has a ton of attachment figures, like yeah. you know, three, four, five. Yes. So that there are people to go to if things aren't so going so well with mom or dad. Um, that's usually five is very rare. But if you have just a grandmother living in the house or an aunt down the street you can go to, yes. who you know loves you and you can feel free to talk to, that can make a very big difference. Yes. And then we have tremendous changes take place in adolescence. There's evidence that uh, in adolescence, you get a a free pass to start all over again in the rebuilding of your psychology. Um, But it depends on the environment having changed for you to take advantage of that. Yes. And adulthood, you may find a mate who's very secure and uh, helps you out of your insecurities. All kinds of things happen so that there actually isn't that much continuity between childhood assessments at age one and adult assessments at age 20. Yes. Yeah. Too much has happened in between. And, and uh, we, we have uh, Dr. Sruth's study and work that has helped us understand that and other longitudinal studies. So well, I'm- Sroff has been a huge contributor. I mean, yes. he's another person that really helped put attachment theory on the map. And he seeded 
attachment scholars at many of the major universities around the country because they graduated from his program and went elsewhere to teach. Yes. And uh, he's been he has been a tremendous force. Yes. Well, I am aware of our time and I want to have at least a little bit of time for you to talk about how long do we have to wait for your updated book uh, becoming attached? On one hand, I thought, wow, what an exciting thing for you to be doing. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, what an overwhelming thing for you to be doing. If I I had the choice, if I could take my redo my decision, I wouldn't have done it. Oh, so but I've also enjoyed doing it very much along the way. And uh, I'm finishing it now. You so are there's a good chance it'll come out, I think, in uh, the next year sometime. So how long have you been working on the revisions and what are some of the biggest like, wow, this is like a totally new thing I need to add? <clears throat> well, on and off. I mean, mostly for the last 10 years, I started about 10 years ago. OK. And I uh, didn't get serious for a few years after that, just sort of toyed around with it. Not sure I was really going to do it. So I've been with it for a long time. And the last few years, you know, really pouring the, you know, the heat on to get it done. Yes. Um, and it's, it's been, um, you know, a lot has changed. Um, for instance, uh, you know, one of the big things now is mentalization. Yes. And, you know, the capacity to be reflective about oneself as a psychological being and about others as psychological beings. And I think... That's a really important development in um, in attachment theory. Another thing has been the um, well. This this existed. In the, I had wrote about this somewhat in the first book as well. But the the video studies of mother mothers and infants together. Mm-hmm. Another another tremendous uh, inter, you know like contribution. Like baby's microanalysis and yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's done great work, and, and it started mostly with Daniel Stern, who was her teacher. Yes. And um, so a lot of great work has been done on that. Um, there's been a lot of concern with WHO involved again uh, with infant psychopathology, not psychopathology, mental pathology, you know, problems in the psychology of children all around the world who are being deprived, neglected, you know, whose families are affected by war or other kinds of strife, uh, yes. famine, that all over the world children are suffering and there's been a lot of concern for, you know, how to, how to address it. Uh, there's also been the development of um, programs for the average person. You know, one of them is uh, infant mother psych- psychotherapy Mm-hmm. It was invented, you know, years ago, decades ago, by Selma Freiberg, a psychoanalyst, and has been adopted since by uh, Alyssa Lieberman, who has done tremendous work. And that those kinds of that kind of therapy is now worldwide. Yes. And there are other there are other programs where parents can bring their kids to be evaluated, and where where they can get sort of a, an education in how they're treating their kid and what. And what, what what the child needs yes. that they may not be aware of, so the, all that makes it hopeful. But I think you know the, the challenges at this point are huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it has just been such a pleasure to speak with you. And um, I'd like to just personally thank you for how much your your book uh, has meant to me and taught me. And um, I've read it over and over and uh, have it all marked up. And uh, I'm also rereading The Forgiving Self um, again. Um, I was inspired to, to do that with this interview. So. And there's a lot of attachment area in that book, too. Yes. And so um, so folks can will be looking for this release. And is uh, there any purchase it like just on Amazon or whatever? Where you're not the you're not the easiest person to track down and find. (laughs) Where can they find what your your books and what you're putting out? Well, the book is being published by Oxford. So, okay, great. It's going to be obvious. It'll be on Amazon. Okay, It'll be perfect. hopefully be in bookstores. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you again um, for your time and um, this this interview. It was it's truly a pleasure and, and wonderful to talk with you. Okay, thank you. It was very much a pleasure for me too. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.